or material form. Now, you know that this is not just an intellectual outlook, outlook, is it? In fact, this outlook has real practical consequences. Fed this narrative, many today live like heathens. And why not? If this life is it, if this life is as good as it gets, then why not feed on whatever happiness your body can have right now? Well, before we start pointing the finger at those around us, perhaps we should also take some responsibility ourselves, right? I don't know that Christians have helped this situation either. If matters of eschatology come up, which they really do. We are almost always occupied with a type of unhealthy fixation, aren't we? Will there be a tribulation? Is the millennium figurative or literal? Etc., etc., etc. And should anything heavenly be mentioned, we speak of it sometimes in very bizarre and lamentable tones. Heaven is either floating on clouds playing harps with angels, which to many sounds more like hell, or heaven is just a glorified conversion of your favorite hobbies and recreations on earth. Are there consequences for this type of thinking as well? Sure. Even as Christians, our gaze these days is almost entirely focused on the here and now. No longer are we pilgrims with Christian on that road to the celestial city. But this world, if we're honest with ourselves, this world has become our home. And we are all too comfortable. Should death invade our world as it has most often in these last few years, in very painful ways? Well, we become all the more fixated on clinging to the present moment than fixing our eyes, our gaze, on what Scripture calls our blessed hope. I find it remarkable, not just because I see this in others, but because I see it in me, that in the midst of a pandemic, we turn our eyes inward, clinging to what we can still have in the moment while it lasts, even as Christians. This morning, my hope is that the Apostle John will give us a renewed vision of the future. And at the end, you will see that this vision will also change the way that you and I should live in the present. With that said, look at 1 John chapter 3 with me. Much like his gospel, John's first letter begins with a stark contrast between light and darkness. 
Look at what he says. This is, if you back up to chapter 1, I'm going to build up to chapter 3. He says in verse 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. As those who have been united to the Son, we participate in that light, he says. Which explains why John is deeply troubled. Deeply troubled by those in the church who claim, on the one hand, to have fellowship with this God of light. And yet, they do so while they are still returning and walking in darkness. John says, you, and he says to me, you are a liar. You are a hypocrite. Tough words, right? Why does John say this? Chapter 1, verse 7. Because you are not practicing the truth. Look at what he says there. If we walk in the light, though, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. John is not naive. Don't think he's naive here. He knows very well how the prince of darkness works. How he appears to us as an angel, masked, disguised in light. Wasn't this the tactic? Wasn't this his tactic from the beginning? We have become so familiar with Genesis that I'm afraid we miss this. God promised death if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does that clever serpent do? He throws that warning into question. You will not surely die. As if this tree was actually the source of light and life. You will be like God, he says. That lie changed. Notice how physical this is. Have you ever noticed how physical the words, the text is at this point? It changed Adam and Eve's sense perception. It had physical consequences for how they then perceived what was in front of them. Notice, notice what it says here. You don't have to turn to Genesis, but just listen to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit. Oh, how easily we are fooled by a little dazzle of the senses. In 1 John 2, John issues yet another warning. Apparently, 
he is still very concerned about the church. Verses 15 and 16, he says, and maybe you need to hear this today, do not love the world or the things in the world, the desires of the flesh, as he calls them. For the world, verse 17, the world is passing away with its desires. <clears throat> but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Did you pick up on John's contract? This world is what? It's temporal. It's transient. If you love this world, friends, you will perish with it. However, if you love God and do His will, John says, then you will abide in Him, and He will be your everlasting light and life. John's charge, and keep in mind, he is speaking to those that he calls children of God. These harsh warnings are to you, the very children of God. First John 2, verse 28, he says, abide in him. Abide in him. But John does something very different. Something that we're not used to, something that we probably would have done ourselves. He turns to the future to substantiate this command. His focus is fixed on what is ahead. Verse 28 and verse 29. John says, by abiding in him, we have confidence right now. We will not shrink from him in shame at his coming either. So notice, it's both present and future. You will not be ashamed on that day. Now John knows how contrary this feels to our present vision, right? Here we are claiming to be children of God, but let's face it, we live in a world that looks at us and thinks of us as strange, as strangers. As those who have been born of God, we practice righteousness. Rather than giving way to the desires of the flesh. First John 2.29, and then as he transitions into chapter 3, notice what he says. The reason why the world interacts itself, why, do, why, why is it that they should not, should not see me as one of them? Here's John's answer. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now let's be honest for a minute. This is a tension that you and I experience every, every day. And if you do not feel that tension, that lack of conformity with the world, we need to talk. 
You need to talk to each other. Are you truly a child of God? You should feel that tension, that lack of conformity, that strangeness. It should be uncomfortable. We live in this world, but friends, we are not of this world. That means, what does that mean for your Christian life? It means this. You should not only be looking backwards to the cross, to the empty tomb, but you should be looking forwards to the return of Christ. And ever more so, when we grow fatigued, are you tired this morning? Do you feel like, ah, I cannot go on? Are you out of gas? Frustrated, depressed, discouraged, jaded? When you grow fatigued by that constant battle with the desires of the flesh, Where do you look? Do you long for that day when you will be like Christ? Conform to his holy image. What reason does John give to ensure you that this conformity of Christ will one day reach its consummation? What assurance is John going to give you that this will actually happen? Look with me in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. If you need a phrase to attach to this beautiful future truth, here it is. This is our Christian doctrine of the beatific vision. The beatific vision. I don't know about you, but the beatific vision, what the ancient church sometimes just called contemplation, is right here in the text, and yet we never talk about it. Is this not shocking to you? How could something so central to what it means to be a Christian now and what it means to what you will one day become be completely absent from our Christian vocabulary and ministry? Maybe a little history can help us. The church universal across the ages, from century to century to century, believed in this beatific vision, and they believed it was absolutely central to Christian hope, and therefore Christian living. 
We do not think about Christian living this way anymore, do we? From the early church fathers to the great minds of the medieval era to the Protestant Reformation, they understood this logic. Think of them this way. First, happiness is located in that supreme, complete, and perfect good. Second, no, no one is supreme, complete, and perfect goodness but one, God himself. Since he does not merely possess goodness, as if he has to go get it, as if it's external to himself, he is good by nature. Therefore, God must be the source of your everlasting happiness. He is your everlasting happiness. If God is the essence of happiness, then your happiness is experienced whenever you participate in God. When will that participation reach its fullness? In the beatific vision. When will this actually come to its culmination? When we, as John says here, see him as he is. I want you to listen for just a minute to a theologian by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Some of these profound words of wisdom, listen to what he says. God promises us complete happiness in heaven. For then by a single, uninterrupted, and continuous act, our minds will be united with God. In the meantime, insofar as we fall short of that lasting unity, so far do we fall short of this perfect bliss. All the same, we can already have some share in it. And so much the greater as our activity grows more single-minded and less distracted. Hence the active life, which is occupied with many things, has thus the nature of happiness than the contemplative life, which revolves around one thing, gazing at the truth. Does that sound remotely familiar to you? Do you remember what David said in Psalm 27? Out of everything David said in the Psalms, what does it all come down to for them? Here it is. Psalm 27, 4. One thing. He is going to ask the Lord of anything. Here it is. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Listen. Listen to this. To gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. 
Is that the one thing that you have asked of the Lord? Now, some of you in this room, I trust, are theologically minded. I know you are. And you might be asking yourself at this point, wait a minute, there seems to be a barrier. When Moses asked to see God's glory at Sinai, God told Moses, Moses, no one can see my face and live. Not even you, Moses. And doesn't Paul say something similar when he's writing to Timothy? When he addresses God as the one who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So why, why would we even consider this? Later this year, our church will dive into our annual doctrinal series. And I'm excited to say we will fix our gaze on the attributes of God. Last year, we focused on the Trinity. How could we stop there? We will turn our attention to the attributes of God. And with Moses, with Paul, we will discover just this. This infinite and eternal God, he is incomprehensible. So, what do we make of this tension then? Without giving away what's to come, what do we make of this tension? On the one hand, no one can see God and live. On the other hand, seeing God is a promise for all who abide in his Son. Do you remember the rest of God's response to Moses? When Moses made that audacious request, show me your glory. Do you remember how God responds after he says, Moses, no one can see my face in it? He should have, in my version of the story, maybe slapped Moses a couple times. <laughs> But our God's more gracious than me. What does he do? He says, Moses, come here. I'm going to position you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to place my hand over you so that you do not see my face and perish. And as I pass by, I will lift it just for a minute so you can see my backside. Do you, do you understand what God is doing? He is accommodating Moses. Friends, has God accommodated you in a way that far surpasses anything Moses experienced? You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul thinks so. He contrasts the era of the Old Covenant with the New. The letter with the Spirit, the ministry of death with the ministry of life, the ministry of condemnation with the ministry of righteousness. 
And he can juxtapose the two because he says, well, the former was preoccupied with the glory that faded away. But the latter with the glory, and Paul is basically jumping out of his skin at this moment to tell you this, a glory that will never perish. It will be permanent. When Israel was redeemed from Egypt and Moses interceded on her behalf, do you remember what happened to Moses' face? It glowed. Whenever he was summoned into the presence of the Lord, his face glowed as he descended down from the mountain. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. And so what did Moses do? He draped a veil over his face so that the people could not gaze at his glory. But do you know what Paul does, how he perceives this entire story? Paul says that the veil also conceals something else, the diminishment of that glory. Whenever Moses left the presence of the Lord, that glory slowly but surely began to fade. And so Moses put a veil on his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And what is that? Paul says it's the old covenant itself. And so Paul appeals to the fading glow of Moses' face to describe just how necessary this new covenant is. A covenant whose glory will never, ever pass away. Paul attributes the need for a veil over the face of Moses to what? To Israel's hard hearts, their unbelieving souls, their stiff necks, a hardening of a mind's eye that continued, Paul said, out of great distress, continued even in his own day. But the minds of he says here in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, he says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And friends, this is after Jesus had come. Is Paul hopeless? He's not. Remarkably, he's not. He says, yes, that veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. The veil covers their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You see, Moses covered his face so that the people did not see the outcome the glory that was fading, the diminishment of this old covenant, this ministry of death. Now, a new ministry, says Paul, is here. One in which the Spirit has lifted the veil so that we, like Moses, can see the glory of our King. Listen to these words from Paul. And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. And then Paul says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts, your hearts, to give the light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. You think what Moses saw was great? You have been given a light to see the very glory of Jesus Christ, which Moses would have done anything to see. Isn't this how John begins his gospel? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and he beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. No man, John knows his Old Testament, doesn't he? No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him to you. How then do we reconcile this tension? The Puritan John Owen can help us. On the one hand, he says, no one can see the essence of God and live, and yet we see God in Christ. He is our mediator by means of his incarnation. And listen to this. On the other hand, seeing God is not sight of the mere nature, the mere human nature of Christ alone but his divine person. After all, says Lord, how can we separate the two? So, we actually behold the person of the Son when we see him. And, if you remember what we learned last year from our doctrine of the Trinity, you may remember that this Trinity is indivisible. So that whenever we behold the person of the Son, we behold the most holy, blessed, and incomprehensible Trinity. I would have loved to have been there. I probably would have laughed in a very awkward way. I was there when Jesus said to Philip, Philip asked, Jesus, you need to show us the Father. <laughs> What does Jesus say? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, on that day when you see, when you experience that beautiful vision of death, our faith will turn to sight as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to behold. Glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
if this is true, if this is what awaits us, how then should we live? I leave you with two, two practical instructions. Number one, this theistic vision should cultivate holiness in your Christian life. Holiness. You may have noticed that we did not finish 1 John. Look back there in chapter 3. I didn't finish verse 3, did I? We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And John's not done. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The beatific vision is our final beautification, if we can put it that way. But this beautifying begins when? Now. It begins right now. How often have we read the Sermon on the Mount and failed to consider Jesus' words? Blessed are who? The pure in heart. Why? Because they will see God. Paul, following Christ, wrote an epistle to Titus and told him that we live in the light now because one day the sun will appear. Listen to what he says, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Have you done this? To renounce ungodliness, worldly passions. What are you to do instead? To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. How radical is that? But with your gaze where? Where is where are you to be looking? As you live upright lives in the, in the midst of a world that will laugh at you while you do so. Where should you be looking? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a man's church, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. What I find so incredible about these words is the way it connects the past and the present to our future. Christ Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. Redeeming us from all unlawlessness. All of it. But that's not all. He gave himself for us to purify a church for himself. So how could we not be zealous for good works as we await that final vision? This theistic vision, friends, if, if you are hearing me say this, please, please hear this correction. This theistic vision is not a license for laziness. This vision is meant to galvanize 
godliness. Number two, and last, the beatific vision should turn your gaze, it should fix your gaze on your true lasting hope. I think now, perhaps as a church, we need to hear this more than ever, as we are so tempted, aren't we, to get lost in all of our fallibility as we look at one another. Will you take a moment? I know it's uncomfortable, but we ask you to do this every Sunday. Will you take a moment? and examine where you have fixed your gaze. Where, ask yourself, where have I placed my hope? Where have I situated my love? And am I too at home in this world? John Owen once said to those Christians, we face this in his day, didn't we? We face it in our day. Those Christians who hope to one day be present with the Lord, but, 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 only once they are satisfied with all they can get out of this world. Do you think that way? I've caught myself thinking that way. Yes, I'm more Jesus, but hold on, hold on. Owen says, I cannot understand how any Christian can walk with God as he ought, or have that love for Jesus Christ, which true faith will produce, or place his refreshment, his joys in spiritual things, in things above, that does not, in all justifications, occasions, so meditate on the glory of Christ in heaven as to long for admittance into the immediate sight of God. Friends, is that your one passion? We do many good things in this church, but I will be straight with you right now. Whether you're new here at Emmaus, or perhaps you've been here for some time, and maybe you've forgotten us, we are about one thing, first and foremost. One thing that sets the pattern of our life together. Here it is. Gazing at the beauty of our world. That's it. If that does not interest you in this life in which we see through a glass darkly, friend, you will not like where we are going. And you will not like what we are about as a church. You will not lie where we are headed when we see face to face. So what are you doing? 
I leave you with one charge. Day in and day out, fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we have so little faith. I have so little faith at times. How often we become so preoccupied with the here and now. We live like the world, even though we claim to have a blessed hope. Lord, we stand under these words of the Apostle John. And we pray that they would energize us so that here and now we strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we do so by your grace and to see your Lord in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.